According to a uh, British survey, 40% of moms have received an unwanted Mother's Day gift. As you can imagine, most of them were too polite to complain. Here's a partial list of 30 of the worst Mother's Day gifts, according to moms who have actually received these. Deodorant. Fire extinguisher. Cleaning supplies. A stick of French bread. Salad dressing. Popcorn. Ants. Perhaps for an ant farm for mom. Hair dye. A screwdriver. Toilet paper roll. A calculator. Car parts. Another newspaper ran an article titled, 20 Awful Mother's Day Cards That You Absolutely Should Not Buy. So the article's clear, do not buy these cards. But in case you're curious, here's a few. Uh, One card said, Mom, thanks for always checking up on me, with a picture of a cell phone with 24 unanswered calls from Mom. (laughs) Another card read, well, I guess this Mother's Day card is late. Looks like someone wasn't raised properly. Another card said, I'm awesome, you're welcome, (laughs) to the luckiest mom ever. And then another card said, Mom, I love you loads. And there's a picture of a laundry basket overflowing with laundry. Speaking of loads, can you do my laundry? Well, I want to wish all of the moms and mom figures in our lives a happy Mother's Day today. I hope that You've never received any of those gifts that I just read, or you haven't received one of those cards, and I hope for all of us that that have moms that that we're not sending our moms those sort of gifts or cards. Uh, Today we're continuing this series that what's called, What is Jesus Doing? We're in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Hebrews chapter 6. Today's message should be an encouragement for every mom gathered here. For every mom watching online, because it's a message of encouragement, it's a message of hope, it's a message of promises. But it's also a message for each and every one of us. It's for all believers. With your Bibles turned to Hebrews chapter 6, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanged nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which, is, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We read in verse 18 
that God did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, you might immediately think of a hope or a dream. As the author tells of Abraham and how he clung to God's promise, you might find the strength to hold on to the promises that you think God has personally made to you. The author, though, isn't trying to connect you to your dreams, but to God's. He wants you to know the promise God made to Abraham is one that those of us who are Christians are recipients of today. We are meant to believe the promise Abraham believed. If we understand the promise that God made to him, we will have an anchor for our lives today. I want you to notice first that God made a promise. God made a promise. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? We read in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. God chose Abraham. Abraham lived in the aftermath of Noah's Ark and the great flood that that flooded the entire world. And so God looked for someone to give and fulfill his purposes through. He had planned to redeem humanity, and so he searched far and wide for the family line through whom his son would come. And one day, God set his sights on Abraham. Initially, God promised Abraham that all of the families on earth would be blessed through him. We read that in Genesis chapter 12, verse two. Later, God reaffirmed his promise, telling Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, in Genesis 15, verse five. Well, after years of having no children, Isaac was born. Hardly a multitude, right? When an adult, God spoke to Abraham again in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. It was this third promise that the author of Hebrews drew from when quoting God, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Again, so what was God's promise to Abraham? In short, it would be that he would have many descendants and that his offspring would bless all nations. Years later, Jesus Christ descended from Abraham as a fulfillment of God's plans to bless the nation through his offspring. In the New Testament, Paul's commentary on God's promises to Abraham was simple. He says in Galatians 3, verse 16, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. And when Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, came, he brought with him a kingdom without end. The Old Testament prophet Daniel heard that God would set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be let to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That forever kingdom belongs to Christ. He will reign forever forever. And ever. 
And so God's promise to Abraham is the promise of a king with a forever kingdom, a savior whose blood would bless all people of any nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And so in a sense, the promise had to do with a new heaven and a new earth, the making of all things new. So the promise to Abraham is the promise that we as Christians cling to today. Notice, secondly, that God's promise is worth waiting for. His promise is worth waiting for. We read in verse 15, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So believers, Christians, are part of the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham looked forward to Christ. Now, 2,000 years after his crucifixion, we look back on Christ. But because we anticipate his return, we, like Abraham, look forward as well. We wait like Abraham waited, believing and trusting God. One day, Christ and his glorious kingdom will become fully visible and fully known. One day, the complete joys and the complete gladnesses of his kingdom will be fully ours. And so we would do well as believers to consider how Abraham waited for the promise of God to unfold in his life. Because we are called to patiently endure, just like Abraham did. So rather than turn to the world to fulfill all of our appetites, We hope in God who aids us as we wait for the fulfillment of his promise. And as we wait, Abraham becomes for us a teacher that teaches us how to wait well. First, Abraham waited by faith. He waited by faith. Genesis 15 verse 6 records, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham heard the promise of God. It was a grand promise indeed. And he believed that God would do it. He thought the God of Scripture would keep his word. The Christian life is like this. It's a life of faith. It begins with faith, which leads to justification, but it continues in faith. Romans 1.17 says, the righteous will live by faith. So every heartbeat, every breath that we take must be conjoined with faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The Christian life is one of trust in God. A God who, though he has given us ample evidence of himself, his word, his gospel, it is a God that we cannot physically see with our own eyes. Second, Abraham waited with lapses of faith. With lapses of faith. There were moments where Abraham buckled in fear before foreign powers and before foreign kings. There were other moments where he took matters into his own hands. His most significant lapse of faith was when he impregnated his servant Hagar in an attempt to get God's promise going. God had promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, after all, he and Sarah didn't have any children. 
And as they aged and and as the the years went by, his trust in God's promise waned, and and he thought that he was needed to jumpstart God's plan. It was a lapse of faith for the icon of faith. The Christian life, though lived by faith, will inevitably include moments where our faith is not as strong as it ought to be. Third, Abraham waited for a long time. He waited for a long time. When he and Sarah finally had a son, Abraham was 100 years old. 25 years had passed since the initial promise. They named the son Isaac. And get this, Isaac didn't have any sons till he was 62 years old, which means that Abraham had to wait 87 years from the time of the promise to the birth of his first grandchild. Another 15 years ticked by before Abraham died. Abraham waited and endured for the promise that God made to him. The Christian life, a life of waiting, sometimes includes long waits for the fulfillment of God's promises. I think the early church correctly thought that Jesus could return at any moment. Still, here we are, 2,000 years later, still awaiting the full manifestation of Jesus' kingdom. And in our own lives, as we wait, we wait for God to perform his perfect work. And so I want to apologize if at some point in your life you were taught that the Christian life doesn't involve waiting, because that simply isn't true. Fourth, Abraham waited while others prospered. He waited while others prospered. When Isaac was fully grown, God tested Abraham's faith on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. After passing God's test, God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. He told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Still, at that moment, all that Abraham had was Isaac. And then immediately after hearing God's promise again, a messenger came to Abraham, and he brought him news about Abraham's long-lost brother, Nahor. The report was simple. Nahor has had 12 sons. The timing of this could not be more perfect. Right at the moment of the promise, Abraham had to witness someone else who didn't have to wait. You know, the world will say to every Christian, you can have it now. You don't have to wait. The promise is here. Just take hold of it. But as believers, we have to know better. For the Christian life will require waiting while other people prosper. Notice third, that God's promise is guaranteed. God's promise is guaranteed. We read in verse 16, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. You know, various societies produce ways within which the, the people in those societies can make meaningful agreements. It might be oaths or contracts or witnesses, signatures, court systems. 
These are all ways designed to create a way to make promises and commitments. You can't buy a car or a house on credit without signing contracts. So many of us are are very aware of that. When you go to purchase a house, you're, you're just signing paper after paper after paper. And oath accompanies your promise to pay. Here, the author of Hebrews tells us that God also made an oath to confirm his promise. He wanted to make it very clear, the text says, that his promise would never change, that his plan would unfold, and so he made an oath. But what is the oath of God's guarantee? God made the promise to us, but but how did he confirm it? What oath did God make? Well, first, God confirmed his promise with the oath of his word, with the oath of his word. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Though scripture was written by a variety of authors over a period of 1,600 years, it tells one story in a beautifully harmonious way. Its integrity is is also attested to by specific and detailed prophecies, along with the often overlooked internal witness. There is a consistency and a cohesion between the books of, of the Bible. Second, God confirmed his promise with the gospel message. He confirmed the, the promise by the gospel. The blood of his one and only son was a high price to pay for humanity. If Jesus came and paid such a dear price to secure a people, we can be assured that he will keep his promise and come again as the Lord of all nations. The account of Jesus' resurrection is one of the most easily verifiable facts in human history. It makes the gospel message itself a strong way that God has confirmed his oath towards us. Third, God confirmed his promise with the indwelling presence of his spirit in the lives of believers. He confirmed it through his spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, they're born again. They're born of the spirit, John 3 tells us. Paul described this deposit of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1.22 as God putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The Spirit, he wrote in Ephesians 1.14, is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It seems that the presence of God's Spirit is the primary way that God guaranteed that he would keep his promise. He made a down payment. The Spirit is a, a foretaste of the future kingdom, but it's also a guarantee that he will bring us to the kingdom. So God's promise is guaranteed. It will come to pass. It is not a pointless hope. It is not a pointless faith. It is not a ridiculous waiting. God's kingdom will come. Notice fourth, we should hold fast to God's promise. We should hold fast to God's promise. 
verse 18 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God's promise is guaranteed. Two unchangeable things confirm it. His oath, his word, the cross, the spirit, but also his nature. He cannot lie. Did you know there are some things that God cannot do? God cannot violate his nature, therefore God cannot lie. What God promises must occur. And Jesus said in John 14, verse two and three, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. His promise will come to pass. And so in light of God's oath and nature, those who have fled to take refuge in Christ should be strongly encouraged to do something specific. We should have a total boldness to take hold of the hope set before us. In the face of life's discouragements, we should, in connection to the promise of God, have bold and confident feelings about God's future for us. There ought to exist, in in the face of trials, in the face of sicknesses, in the face of arguments against God, in the face of temptations, in the face of personal weaknesses, there ought to exist a hope in his promise. His kingdom will come. And as we wait for it, we must do so with boldness. Look, life is not easy for anyone. Hardships abound. I know that a day like today, a holiday like Mother's Day, can can be difficult for some people. Maybe you've recently lost your mother, and so this is, this is hard for you. For some of you, maybe you have an estranged relationship with your mother. There may be some of you here who have, who have longed to, to, to be a mother, and that dream has never come true. Life can be hard, and we face hardships. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that we have reason for confidence and hope. We know that this life is not all there is. We know that God is making all things new. We know that God is uniting all things to himself. We know that he will bring his kingdom, his new heavens and his new earth to his people. We know it. Lastly, notice that God's promise should anchor our lives today. His promise should anchor our lives today. Verse 19 and 20 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews wanted to get back to his intended subject, which is the high priestly work of Jesus today. That's why we've called this series, What is Jesus Doing? One of Jesus' primary roles today is he is our our high priest. He's sitting at the right hand of God, living to make intercession for us. But before the author of Hebrews can detail this fact, he felt compelled to rebuke and realign his audience. They needed to keep going in and with Christ. And so do we. 
And for continuation with Jesus, we have an anchor for our souls. Our anchor is firm and secure. The anchor in the author's mind is God's promise. First to Abraham and now to us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright provides some helpful context for this passage. He writes, what the author is going to say more fully in the passages to come is that Jesus has gone in, not into the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but into the, tu- into the true sanctuary, the world of heaven itself, right into the innermost courts and into the very presence of the loving Father. And he has gone there on our behalf. We are attached to him as though by a great metal cable. He is there in the very presence of God, like an anchor. As long as we don't let go of that cable, we are anchored to the presence of God. All the winds, tides, and storms that may come can't shift us. There is enormous comfort to be had, precisely at such times, in the knowledge that the anchor is firm and secure. We are not promised that there won't be any storms. Indeed, the provision of a secure anchor implies that there will be. What we are promised is that we will be kept safe. Though it's only used as a metaphor for hope one time in Scripture, anchors were common figures of hope in the ancient world. And anchors are necessary for the storms of life. Divorce, trauma, ministry disappointments, fatigue, disease. These are all endured more effectively when we are connected to the great anchor of faith that we have in God's promise. This earthly life, this earthly kingdom is not all there is. Church, death does not win. And so as we consider the way an anchor works, I want to close by sharing just a few insights. One, anchors are helpful only when unseen. On the deck of a boat, an anchor doesn't really serve to steady the ship. But when it's cast out into the ocean beyond where the passengers can see, the anchor steadies the ship. Our promise and our Lord, though unseen, are in the perfect place to steady our lives today. In fact, it's only because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father that we have such a steadying influence. Only when he went up did his spirit come down. Second, anchors keep us from drifting. It's not toughness, it's not willpower that makes a Christian endure and last. Instead, it is a deep and vital connection to the promise of God. Hope in his future kingdom and hope in his promises enable a believer to steadfastly follow Christ. Third, anchors normally go down, but our anchor goes up. For this reason, it says, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. This means that our Lord has gone into the real throne room of God rather than a a replica temple here on earth. Jesus went as our forerunner, the first to go so that we could go. Abraham was an anchored man who endured because he believed God's promise for his life. 
He was able to put all of his hope on what God said would happen. And believers today strive for the same faith and the same fortitude. You know, fears, worries, stress, pains, they are sure to come. Life is filled with these disorders. But perhaps they should point us up, behind the veil, into God's throne room, connecting us to God's promise and God's kingdom. In much the same way that scarecrows are intended by the farmer to cause birds fear, the pains that we face in life oftentimes produce fright in us. But consider this. A wise crow knows that the presence of a scarecrow must mean that there's something good in that field. And perhaps our fears, perhaps our trials, perhaps our frights are all pointing us to something richer, truer, and better. Perhaps it's God's promise that we must put our attention and our hope upon. Let's hope in God's promise today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you at this time, hoping, holding fast onto your promise. God, we thank you that we have an anchor for our soul. God, thank you that no matter what we go through in life, we know that, that you are establishing a kingdom without end, a forever kingdom. And as believers, we can claim that promise that we belong to that kingdom that the promise you made to Abraham is the promise that we hold on to today. And God, I pray that no matter what life throws at us, we would be able to hold on to that anchor because we know the anchor holds. God, I pray for, for people here today who, Lord, if they're being completely honest, that, that their life is not anchored in you. God, for, for those in here whose, whose life is, is being tossed to and fro, who, who don't have the anchor of Jesus Christ in their life, God, I, I pray today they would realize that the promise that you made to Abraham is a promise that they can claim if they will put their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody who needs to do that, God, I pray that today would be the day they make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their life, that they would accept the free gift of forgiveness, they would hold on to the gift of eternal life. God, thank you for being a God of promises, a God that can be trusted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.